Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, December 14th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We are going to kick off this week's episode talking about the political earthquake that happened in Alabama on Tuesday. Democrat Doug Jones uh, won just about 50 percent of the vote, was elected to the Senate. He's the first Democrat elected to an Alabama Senate seat since 1992, defeating Republican Roy Moore, who, of course, faced all those allegations of sexual assault, other sexual misconduct, of inappropriate conduct with teenagers over the course of the campaign. So we're going to talk about what happened there, the big surge in the African-American vote, the big crossover vote in some of Alabama's usually uh, conservative white-collar counties. And we're going to talk about what it means. Obviously, the Senate Republican conference is going to be down to 51 votes after Jones is sworn in. So uh, we're going to talk about what kind of senator he's going to be and just look forward to the 2018 elections a little bit as well. We're also going to talk a little bit about 2020. Uh, President Trump getting into a Twitter spat, well, attacking actually on Twitter, it wasn't much of a back and forth, uh, attacking Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, who is one of the Democrats who appear to be gearing up to run against him in 2020. We'll talk about what happened there and just some of the dynamics going on within the Democratic Party right now, looking ahead to facing Trump in 2020 and the Trump White House looking at them uh, preparing for him. And we are also going to talk tax reform once again this week. Uh, Senate and House Republicans have reached a tentative agreement on what's going to be in the final bill, which could pass as soon as next week. So Nancy Cook, uh, as always, is going to give us the lowdown, get into the weeds a little bit on what's happening there. A couple notes before we jump into all that. Please, if you have questions, remember you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And also remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. All right, I am here in the studio this week with senior politics editor Charlie Matessian, who is skipping the grand opening of the DC Wawa to be here with us today. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Scott. I'm not skipping it. I'm going as soon as this recording is over. i got to check that out. Touche. Stock up on some tasty cakes. Charlie was not among the legions lined up outside when it opened this morning, I guess, is, is the way the way we'll put it. But it's a big deal. I, I'm a former employee, so it you know has a place. You're a former employee? I worked, I worked at Wawa in high school. Oh. And we have Daniel Strauss, campaign reporter, fresh off a few, a few weeks in Alabama. Well, a few weeks cumulatively. I'm back. Welcome. All right. And that is what we are going to talk about first. Our data point is 16 percentage points. That's how far ahead Alabama Democrat Doug Jones ran Tuesday night compared to Hillary Clinton in 2016 as Jones won the Alabama Senate special election over scandal-plagued Republican Roy Moore. The final tally, 49.9 percent for Jones. 48.4% for Roy Moore, 1.7% for various write-in candidates. We assume Nick Saban got a bunch of those. Uh, But the big story, obviously, Doug Jones winning. I think that I have been waiting all my life, and now I just don't know what the hell to say. 
Alabama electing its first Democrat to the Senate since 1992, its first Democrat to any statewide office since 2008, powered by a huge surge of black voters and a bunch of usually conservative white voters crossing the aisle to oppose more. So, Daniel, set the scene for us a little bit. You were watching on the ground in Alabama last week as Doug Jones crisscrossed the state going to black churches, Christmas parades, fish fries, introducing himself and urging voter turnout. And clearly it worked. But what what were you seeing? What was your experience watching this last I, week as it was, it was in action? This sort of like multi-faced attempt. On, on the one hand, he was holding fish fries virtually every night at churches in these uh, 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 locations where black voters would turn out. And there was a lot of skepticism. There were a lot of people as, as saying, well, like the black community is not responding as as enthusiastically as they could to Jones. It's not clear if this will work, if they're actually going to turn out. And then on the other side, he uh, worked in advertising and uh, up north or the northern part of the state, the big uh, urban centers to appeal to moderate Republicans, suburban Republicans who the campaign figured would be turned off by the allegations against more and would possibly come out and vote for a Democrat. It all seemed like a stretch. How how did that affect your coverage of this? I mean, we were watching it. We knew what he was trying to do, but we obviously – we didn't know if it was going to work. And the – and it was – happening across so many different areas. The black vote, especially in Alabama, unlike uh, states in a lot of other parts of the country, there's a big urban black vote. But there's also a big rural black vote in, in Alabama. And so this was a very diffuse effort. Um, the exit polls pegged black, black turnout at about 30 percent. We'll see what uh, voter file analysis and others said. Exit polls sometimes overstate minority turnout a little bit. But um, how, did, how did that affect you covering this and the decisions you made in terms of writing about it and you know, this this sense of we didn't know exactly whether this was going to work or not. You know, since 2016, I've, I've been trying to figure out how important crowd size is and sort of extrapolate that into... This is like the age-old question. <laughs> my reporting. And right. signs. And, and campaign st- signs. Yeah, campaign signs. I mean, in, in at the beginning of 2016, I went to a Bernie rally in Arizona and it was huge. <laughs> for uh, for Bernie. And I wish in retrospect I had taken that more into account. And there was some of that here. I, I did not think that that meant he would win. But but there was I, clearly enthusiasm. There was clearly enthusiasm. And there's nothing wrong with mentioning right. that. There were, like at one of these fish fries, I counted 100 uh, attendees here, all of them black. And so I tried to extrapolate that. So that's one fish fry he's doing – I don't know, three and four days over this period along the black belt and then just sort of multiply that around the state and would that factor into this? And it was possible, but we still didn't know. The importance was highlighting in my reporting that we didn't know, but this was this Jones' was the bat. Yeah. Right. And the same thing with um, – uh, suburban voters. I, I tried to talk to a lot of rank and file uh, uh, Republican voters in uh, uh, suburban Birmingham and suburban Huntsville and get a sense of where they were leaning. Again, these this is highly anecdotal, but in retrospect, it, it shows that there was some sort of path that Jones bet on. But really, Scott, I got to stress, I don't think the Jones campaign knew for sure. And the Moore campaign, I, I think, didn't either. No, for sure. And I think that's a really good point. And I think it was interesting covering this election with so with relatively little polling compared to what we usually see in a blockbuster Senate race or obviously a presidential race. Um, right, Charlie, in that like we didn't there wasn't it wasn't grounded so much in those numbers. And so we almost didn't feel the 
pressure to say it's like, oh, this is how it's going to turn out and why. It was describing everything that's happened and how that could affect the outcome. And obviously Jones hit it right down the middle. Right. And why would the Jones campaign know? Why would Democrats be able to count on a victory? Because after all uh – out of the last 52 statewide races in Alabama, Alabama Republicans have won 43 of them. And they've, lost, they've, they've won the last Ooh. 25 statewide races in a row since 2008. So, I mean, you're talking about an environment that's extremely hostile to, uh, at least statewide, to, to Democratic candidates. And uh, there are all sorts of other variables, too. I mean, what, what didn't get a lot of attention, I thought, is the fact that uh, he wasn't a conservative Democrat. He didn't run as a conservative Democrat. He is probably the most liberal Democrat Alabama has elected in uh, quite a while because the last Democrat would have been uh, Howell Heflin. It was Shelby. No, Shelby. Heflin or Shelby. Uh-huh. Uh, both, both of them were both pretty conservative. <laughs> and so, yeah, and exactly. Shelby's now a Republican. So for uh, there's so many reasons. And then there were other variables like – we, we, how would you, you don't know how to predict turnout or what to expect from a special election that takes place between Thanksgiving and Christmas? You know <laughs> that gets lost uh, in everything else, and then you've got this other black box factor, which is Alabama is notoriously difficult to poll. The people don't have a lot of experience polling there, so you had all of these factors at play that were going to obscure the results from the beginning. What's also notable here is that uh, despite sort of the back and forth moves by uh, national Republicans with more uh, the local Alabama Republican Party was lockstep behind him. They didn't waver in their support for him. That's the a really interesting point. Alabama Democratic Party is horribly, horribly uh, a weak in the state and there wasn't much that they could do to support Jones. Uh, they're, they're, they're really factionalized right now. And so Jones had to do this himself. He had to build his own coalition in the process. And more I, – I think there was more hesitance among uh, Alabama Republican Party officials. But officially and uh, overtly, they were supportive of him. And the suburbs were such a huge part of this, a very important part of, of what happened because it wasn't just Shelby County. It was also the uh, highly educated and affluent precincts of, of Jefferson County where you saw uh, – numbers uh, swing wildly from November 2016 when uh, Hillary Clinton got buried among those voters to uh, 2017. And, you know, I think it points to a, a larger problem. There is a, a ticking time bomb uh, in the suburbs for the Republican Party. And you're, you're seeing it's beginning to metastasize to the South. I mean, this has been a longstanding problem started in the 90s, but it started in the Northeast. In the South, though, the suburbs were holding firm. Now you're starting to see, you saw this in Georgia, in the special election there, and also in the Trump results uh, in 2016. You've seen it in some special elections in Georgia since then. Now you see it, the erosion in, in Alabama. Now, Alabama, I think, is kind of an outlier because uh, Moore was such an outlier himself. But still, you're seeing all this erosion in these uh, suburban Republican bastions, and that is a real problem going forward. For the yeah, I, th- I think I've been wondering how to calibrate this given what a horrific candidate Moore was and how horrific the allegations against him uh, were. But I think, like you said, it all fits into the same pattern, right? The, you know, suburban, like white collar suburban voters in Alabama are like more conservative than they are in Georgia or Virginia, but more pushed them a little farther and so they kind of pushed in the same direction and the you know the fact that this just happened with a very flawed candidate i don't think is is any more welcome a sign for republicans in orange county california or the phoenix suburbs or New Jersey or anywhere else in the country that where members, especially the House of Representatives, are potentially grappling with this stuff uh, looking ahead toward 2018. Daniel, let's talk a little bit about practical effects here. Um, 
tell us, we've been talking about Jones and Moore for a little while, but just uh, give us a, a little bit of a re-up on Jones's biography and what kind of senator we should expect him to be. He's in that seat now until 2020, is completing the remainder of uh, the term that Attorney General Jeff Sessions was elected to in 2014. So he's going to be here for a while. Right. Uh, and look, it's funny actually. Howell Heflin, this conservative senator who was one of the last Democrats to hold a Senate seat, was his mentor, and that's someone he really prided himself on uh, having a close association with. He was always eager throughout. I've heard. I've heard that he was the attorney that prosecuted the 16th Street Baptist Church bombers so much over this last year. Uh, and beyond that, he actually stayed out of the limelight. He was always sort of floating around what was what's left of the Alabama Democratic donor and uh, uh, Democratic Party community. He's always close to candidates who ran or uh, executive directors or party leaders, but he never really took the spotlight himself. And uh, he is high re- highly regarded in Birmingham among both Democrats and Republicans who live there. Uh, some of these people are just uh, sort of people who know him or close to him. His kids go to the same school with them. Um, but he has really sort of kept that uh, that that uh, reputation. And outside, after he left uh, his job as a U.S. attorney, he went into private practice uh, and uh, founded his own firm, Jones Hawley, and kept in touch with a lot of the uh, lawyers who would become his top advisors on this campaign. This hmm. is a, a bunch of his buddies are really the ones who helped uh, create this win. And in terms of, and you mentioned this briefly before, but he counts Heflin as a mentor, but he is not. He he does not uh, have the the same kind of Southern Democratic ideology that we might expect from a or that we've seen in the past from a Democratic senator from the Deep South. Right. I think that. Was was part of the wink, wink, nudge, nudge here. Like he would, he would imply that he would be a senator. Like, well, no, he'd actually overtly say he would model himself after Hal Heflin. But if you looked at his positions, it, we're looking at a very mainstream Democrat here. This is not someone. This is not someone who. I guess uh, would talk about how he had a gun under his pillow every night, like the now liberal Kirsten Gillibrand or someone else. <laughs> well, we'll talk a little bit more about Gillibrand in the next segment, actually. But so we, you know, we go down the line. He he's uh, against the Republican tax plan. Jones is. He's against repealing Obamacare. He wants to make changes to health care, right? But I, I don't think that's outside the Democratic mainstream, right? At this point. He's not in favor of single payer. But he, he, well, he, he says he's not there yet. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> that is an important distinction. Actually, that's really interesting. Right, because remember, like President Obama used to say, "I'm uh, my my views are evolving on gay marriage." That's sort of the thing he's doing here, and he he sort of left the door open there. Uh, he focuses. He likes to talk about a minimum wage. He's pro gay marriage. Uh, this is not pro abortion rights, pro climate science, pro climate science down the line in Alabama of all places. <laughs> so that I mean that kind of raises the question. So he, I mean, Charlie, like, is he is he he's renting the seat, I guess, and he's going to be a strong Democrat, and then and then what? I think that he's got a couple of paths ahead of him. Uh, it, it's hard to overstate how precariously perched he is right now. He won. 50%. He scraped to 50% if you round of the vote to, to win the seat, first of all. So he is, you know, has a very tenuous hold on this seat against a child molester. I mean, that's, he barely got the 50% against a child molester. So he gets to Washington and he's going to be under tremendous pr- pressure because Democrats and progressives are going to be expecting big things out of him. But back home, they're going to be watching him very closely. He is up in three years. That's not a ton of time to build his name recognition and to uh, build the constituent 
service model that's going to get him reelected. He's going to have to figure out what positions are palatable back home and which ones aren't. He's going to have to figure out whether he wants to be a Don Quixote-like character uh, or whether he's going to moderate a little to uh, appeal back home. And keep in mind now, and this is this is an important point, Roy Moore could be back. I mean, that guy is not done. He, he hasn't conceded. Yeah. He, well, aside from the fact that he hasn't even conceded yet, he's 70 years old, but he's going to be 73 in 2020. We know now from just looking around in Washington that the uh, septuagenarians are on the rise here and and many of them still running for office. Moore was on the ballot in the 80s, uh, two times. He was running in the 90s. He ran in 2000. He ran in 2006. He ran in 2010. He ran for president or at least considered running for president in 2012 uh, before he ran for the high court, state high court. Then he runs for the Senate, the first chance uh, for this 2017 campaign. So this is a guy who has spent the last three Decades it's or four, I don't know how many decades. How many decades is it now? Three or four, <laughs> running for statewide office. Do you really think he's going to pass up this opportunity? He's going to see it as a redemption play, and there's a very good chance he comes back. That's probably um, Jones's best hope of getting reelected. But I can't imagine that Moore would win. The, I, I don't think it is. Again. Look, the first thing I heard from some of my sources after Jones was was. Yeah, well, he lost now, but he's you know he's going to lose in 2020. This is like <laughs> they are very giddy about this. They, they say next time we're going to have a very serious candidate who comes up. It's not going to be Luther Strange. It's not going to be Roy Moore, and he's going to take the seat. I just think it's the it's going to be interesting long before we get to that election that um, we've seen in the House with redistricting and then with realignment uh, at the state level in the Senate um, in in the South and across the country that like. Part of the problem that the Democratic Party has is that the Republican Party has systematically eliminated their ambassadors to places like Alabama, uh, Western Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera, on down the line. It's going to be interesting to see uh, what, if anything, Jones can do to rebuild the Democratic Party in Alabama or if this really was a one-off. He has a golden opportunity in front of him to do something like that. And look, if the exit polls are to, believe, are to be believed – he he owes the black community in Alabama a lot. I mean, they came out strongly for him. He has to pay attention to them. And he even said that in his speech. That was one of the first thank yous he gave. He acknowledged that. I think he's aware that uh, black voters are the ones that pushed him over the line here. And he needs to represent them in Congress. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Well, that that caps off our coverage of 2017 special elections. It's been a long year. Uh, we will be back, though, uh, next year with we've got a special election coming up in the aforementioned Western Pennsylvania in uh, Pennsylvania's 18th district to replace Tim Murphy, who uh, resigned earlier this year. That could end up being a little interesting. You know, it's an ancestrally Democratic area, if not one that has voted for Democrats recently. Uh, we're going to have a special election in Arizona to replace Trent Franks. That's a little bit more of kind of a traditionally Republican district in in a lot of ways. Um, and but then, yet another seat left open due yep. to sexual misconduct. Yep. I mean, uh, really, uh, seriously, think about how many members have stepped down or not running for re-election because of sexual misconduct issues. Like, when the hell do they legislate? <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> It's just like a, a, an endless perv show up on Capitol Hill. And the rumors I, are that there are more coming. Oh, I, yeah. I you just, know there are. Yeah, absolutely. I could I could do with a break of special elections right now. I don't think – well, it doesn't look like we're going to get it. It looks I like mean, they're going to be running all the way through 2018. Don't you guys think there might be a few more special elections that 
could happen soon that we don't know about yes, yet. Yes, no, ex- exactly. That's that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. So, all right, we will keep an eye on that. Daniel, thank you so much for uh, walking us through this. Thank you for all the time you spent down in Alabama, uh, even though it wasn't that bad for you. You ate a lot of good barbecue. I loved you're it. You're just on the road. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> all right, thank you very much, Daniel. Thanks, guys. All right, as we bid farewell to Daniel, let's welcome in White House reporter Nancy Cook for segment two of the podcast. Hi, Nancy. I'm breaking up this nerdy dude fest that you all <laughs> just had. Well, Eliana called in sick today, although, and then it just would have been a nerdy election fest. That's I true. Guess, That's at, true. At that point. That's but true. The, <laughs> all right. For our second segment, we are going to uh, – our, our data point – we're kind of backing in with this data point, but bear with me. Data point is $3 million. That's how much money – Kirsten Gillibrand, the senator from New York, has raised in small contributions so far this year, uh, according to the FEC. And that's more than any sitting senator save Elizabeth Warren. In other words, Gillibrand has a big following. She's got a grassroots following among Democrats, one that has grown this year. And President Trump went after her uh, on Tuesday on Twitter, ostensibly about campaign finance, uh, in a tweet Tuesday after Gillibrand called for investigations into the you know allegations of sexual assault uh, that Trump has faced going back to the campaign. And here here is what uh, the Trump tweet says. Lightweight Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a total flunky for Chuck Schumer and someone who would come to my office, quote, begging for campaign contributions not so long ago and would do anything for them, is now in the ring fighting against Trump. This is Trump, Trump tweeting it in the third person. Very disloyal to Bill and Crooked. Used! Exclamation point. I'm sorry I didn't break out the the accent and the you know the proper inflection, but that I felt like about as much as I could do. Anyway, so Nancy, once again, another tweet generates a day worth of news and controversy, particularly the bit about and would do anything for them in in the parentheses there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it was interesting. The White House's response was so interesting because Sarah Huckabee Sanders in the briefing that day basically uh, said when asked about this that anyone who thought that Trump was somehow, you know, trying to slut shame Senator Gillibrand or suggest that she would do anything for campaign contributions, which I think is honestly how all of America read the tweet, had their mind in the gutter. Um, And so it was just this very interesting moment of the White House uh, you know, President Trump using sort of very sexualized derogatory language to talk about a female politician much the way that he has in the past. And the White House really sort of saying, well, if you saw that, that's your problem. It's like Trump's degree from Wharton was in plausible deniability. He He's like an expert in these like just like just enough veiled attacks on women dating back to Megyn Kelly, right? During the those oh, uh, presidential debates in 2015. Uh, that just enough plausible deniability for his defenders to say, it's like, oh, how could you uh, say that this is, you know, a, a sexist or sexually based attack? And and yet, you know, it's everyone can judge it for themselves. It's just such an interesting political calculation to me. You know, since Trump elected, we have seen uh, you know, a huge women's march in Washington. We've seen a huge Me Too moment. We saw suburban women totally come out against the uh, Republican candidate for governor. Like, I feel like this is really a moment when I personally, if I were a politician, Republican or Democrat, would not want to be picking fights or sort of making these coded things, which to women 
sound a certain way regardless of your political party. Um, and yet the White House keeps doing it. And it's interesting because Gillibrand herself, you know, and, and Charlie is probably a bit more familiar with this, but, you know, she is a pretty savvy politician and has had her own ideological evolution um, over the years. But it's interesting that, uh, you know, this instance gives her a lot of ammunition with Democrats and a lot of opportunity to capitalize on this moment and sort of speak to the place that she is now in the party. And if you trace the course of, of Trump's tweets, you often find that he talks very dismissively about the political class this way and, and very often talks about them as supplicants that came to him on bended knee and likes to you know present this image that he was a, a player and a kingmaker uh, in his office and, and this was an easy business and these clowns would always come to him seeking advice and cash. So that is in keeping with, with – the style, but you know, obviously, this was a tweet beneath the dignity uh, of the president of the United States, and uh, you know, as Nancy mentioned, another example of just uh, a remarkable degree of crudeness, and you know, a tin ear, refer, you know, and how he refers to uh, women. I mean, the, there's not much more we can say about what he says on Twitter, but I, but I think you have to be honest about like the politics of this here. These politics are great for Kristen Gillibrand. Oh, amazing! Kristen Gillibrand. It was like a gift, a Christmas present for her. Sure. Elevated her profile on the national stage. It energized her fundraising, and, and you know, and it put her toe to toe with the president of the United States on the eve of a campaign in which she's probably going to run against him. And you know, she fought back hard and gave as good as she got. And so, I think at the end of the day, as crass as it was, and uh, it probably ends up accruing to her advantage in political terms, at least. It's it's really interesting. I mean, I, I not to suggest that Gillibrand wanted to be talked about like this in in any sense, but uh, but there is almost. It seems like a, a quiet, tacit competition sometimes among Democrats to do things that might provoke Trump to tweet about them or otherwise attack them and then reap the benefit of increased stature uh, among grassroots Democrats, among their colleagues in the House or Senate, um, so on and so forth. And this is one of the ways that Gillibrand has ended up being – when we think of the people who are real like grassroots uh, stars in the party, we think of Bernie Sanders, we think of Elizabeth Warren, right? But – I mean, we mentioned that data point up front. Kirsten Gillibrand it has a big, big email list, a big following. Um, it's not just the you know Wall Street contributions and and whatever else fueling you know her from a campaign perspective. And that's really a Trump era phenomenon. I mean, she wasn't that well known before Trump was president outside of New York. I mean, obviously, when you're senator of New York, you're sort of a big player on the on the national scene. But you know, she wasn't that big until she started taking on Trump nominees and and cutting a high profile on opposition. And and as the as the senator from uh, you know one of the capitals of the resistance. Well, and also, I feel like she has picked uh, policy areas which have really ended up becoming quite hot. You know, whether or not she pick them that way or whether or not it just coincided with the timing. But, you know, she uh, has been a major driver of the sexual assault uh, legislation um, for a long time. And, and that is now, you know, viewed as really prescient given everything that's happened. Uh, you know, she was one of the, uh, you know, she was one of the group of female Democratic senators who urged Franken to resign. That has given the Democrats a lot of moral authority on this particular issue. And now Trump is picking fights with her. And so uh, the timing and her policy interests have kind of aligned to, I, I think, make her a, a real interesting person to watch. Yeah, the, there's there's an impulse to, which, which I've 
given into multiple times to to kind of wave off any conversation about 2020 presidential candidates and it's being very early. But there there is stuff going on and she's one of the people – Gillibrand is one of the people, right, Charlie, who's clearly uh, looking at this and thinking about this and – um, not running, but but not not running, right? Does it like if that distinction makes sense, right? They're uh, preserving uh, and maintaining the you know avenues and, and equipment to run uh, with the decision to come later, right? There is a massive field that's taking shape right now. You've probably got over forty names that are being tossed around with various degrees of of seriousness, and you know you're talking about uh, if, if you were saying more serious than the others, probably close to two dozen that are at least seriously thinking about it or could be considered viable in one way or another, and that includes more House members thinking about it than I can ever remember. I mean, you're talking all kinds of different uh, degrees and of of Democrats, whether it's uh, unknown Maryland Rep. John Delaney or uh, Luis Gutierrez, who uh, you know, a, a immigration reform advocate out of Chicago who just announced that he was not going to run for re-election but was going to explore a presidential run, Seth Moulton out of Massachusetts, Tim Ryan out of Ohio. So you've got the House members, a handful there. Then you've got more than a dozen senators and governors across the country, including Gillibrand. And it's just a reflection of – well, it's a fr- reflection of a couple of things. Number one, the deep level of animosity toward the president but also of h- how wide open the field is uh, this year. You've got a senior group of uh, possibles, which would, I would include – Bernie, Joe Biden, uh, Elizabeth Warren in. And then you've got a whole different class of younger members of Congress and senators, people like uh, Gillibrand or Kamala Harris, uh, Cory Booker, all those folks. And uh, each is going to have to find a way to break out of the pack. And that's not going to be easy. Yeah. And when Trump tweets about you, that certainly helps. Yeah. For sure. The N- Nancy, to, to what extent does does this kind of early maneuvering and thinking and and Certainly, the combat with Trump on the Democratic side uh, play into to you know what people in the White House are like thinking about and doing. Certainly, it it clearly gets the president's attention. It clearly gets the president's attention. You know, interestingly, I we've been sort of tracking this on the Politico White House team. Uh, you know, there's going to be a bunch of personnel shifts at the beginning of the year. Um, we're already starting to see people leaving. And I bring that up in the context of this because, you know, there are some people in the White House who are very dissatisfied with the Trump's uh, political operation, which is run by a strong ally of uh, Jared Kushner, this guy Bill Stepien. And there's a feeling post-Alabama that maybe he wasn't giving them the best advice. You know, some of the blame of what happened in Alabama is being laid at his feet a bit. Um and there's also just a sense that maybe because General John Kelly doesn't really have a background in politics as much, he's focused much more sort of on the process of the White House. There's a sense that going into 2018, they're going to need a much stronger, uh, you know, political operation. And the president, I feel like, feels like or it seems that he thinks he's the best strategist, but they just need a more robust operation around him to kind of like channel him essentially because around him to channel him to offer good polling to offer more strategy um they just need a more robust uh operation just and the, the thing is that they've been so reactive you know they've been thinking about the tax plan and they've been thinking about alabama and we're starting to see them lay some of the groundwork for messaging in 2018 on all that trump has done for the economy but they need some folks who can do like long term look at 2020 and i feel like some of the outside groups may be doing that although they haven't been that effective at this point and so i feel like that's one area i we will see the white house beef up in uh the coming year 
That's some interesting inside scoop. I hadn't heard uh, that part of it, and that's really interesting. It makes total sense when you when you look at how the political operation over there has been running in the first year. It has been very different than past uh, presidents. You know, it 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 does it's not as muscular. It's not as um, uh, forward thinking, and uh, it certainly has a much lower profile. I don't know whether for whether that's for the better or for the worse than than other shops. Um, but in any case, you, you know, you can see why they would be under pressure uh, because you know he was so tarnished by this loss in Alabama. I think it's it's highly unusual for a president to back two losers in the same race. I mean, that just never happens. I mean, the only other time I could think of is maybe Specter, uh, That's what I was Obama say, in 2010 yeah. when he backed uh, Arlen Specter for the Democratic nomination and Specter lost. And then he went out and campaigned for Sestak and then Sestak lost in the general. But beyond that, like, can you think of another example? I can't think of any in the last 20, 30 years where a president would have backed two people in the same race and both lost. Um, and, and so he's diminished. He spent a lot of political capital, no matter what he says on Twitter. He spent a lot of capital. He lost on Luther uh, Strange. Uh, he spent capital on Roy Moore. And in the end, he got nothing in return. So it's a pretty humbling experience for him. Mm-hmm. We'll have to watch that going for especially the, you know, what, what shifts happen in the White House as they gear up for uh, 2018. Nancy, I want to throw it back to you for our third segment. Uh, we're going to talk about taxes and a little bit of what the White House and Congress are doing on this. Um, the data points for segment three are 21% and 37%. That's respectively the corporate tax rate and the top individual tax rate in the deal struck by House and Senate Republicans seeking to combine their tax bills and put legislation before President Trump next week. Could pass the Senate by Tuesday, uh, Politico was reporting uh, yesterday afternoon. So, Nancy, we said it before, but I can say it again. This is moving and changing very fast, so fast that the experts are still discovering things in it. Um, Tell us about the process moving forward here, the extent to which the bills are being combined, redrafted, altered. Certainly, one of those data points, both of those data points we just cited, are different than the tax rates that were contained in both bills that passed the House and Senate. Well, they're right. They're a little bit different. Um, I would say like even since we sort of talked yesterday about what uh, we were going to talk about today, things have shifted. Um, And so we're sort of coming to the point where the House and the Senate have coalesced around this uh, agreement tentatively on the broad stuff. They're still figuring out sort of the wonky details. Um, But, you know, they're planning to vote early next week. Uh, We're going to have draft legislation, I would probably say. Like they're finalizing it today, maybe tomorrow, um, which is just an incredibly fast time to do a tax bill. You know, if you want to look at the last major overhaul of the tax code in 1986, um, it really kicked off in 1984 and President Reagan signed it in 1986. So that happened over a two-year period. This happened over, you know, really Congress uh, didn't get it kicked to them until late September. Uh, from the White House. And so that's just an incredibly fast time frame. And even, you know, I'm reporting this big story for early next week on how this came together. You know, even Republican tax lobbyists that I've talked to, tax experts, are still trying to figure out what exactly is in the bill, uh, what will be the policy consequences, what it will mean for people. Um, and there's a sense that there will have to be, come January, a huge sort of technical corrections bill that goes through and, like, solve some of the policy dilemmas uh, that I think they'll be confronted with by doing legislation so fast. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And so that's essentially another opportunity then for everyone to 
I mean, that, that's another opportunity to change things, basically, that if if there's something politically that, that people think isn't working or for lobbyists to try and insert uh, something that they would like to see if if they have to go through this process of kind of line editing what, what they already passed. Yeah, I mean, basically 2018 is going to be like tax lobbyist bonanza because there will be this huge technical corrections bill while they're well, – where they'll have to do stuff. There'll be a bunch of sort of regulations and guidance around the tax bill. And all of those are like points of contact where you can lobby it. And the American public is not really going to be paying as close attention. And quite frankly, like there's been so much news lately with the Alabama Senate race, with all the Me Too stuff, with the sexual harassment, with the sexual harassment charges against members of Congress, that, you know, I've talked to some Republicans who feel like there just hasn't really been that much attention paid to the tax bill at all. And, and I've feel like some people are have been appreciative of that because it's allowed them to move so fast with with less public scrutiny. There was a really interesting Wall Street Journal story recently as an example of some of what's in the bill not not being fully understood uh, even by people who are watching this stuff very closely. Um, and the journal's Richard Rubin found that essentially there, there's language in the Senate tax bill that actually would tax some income at a rate higher than 100 percent uh, because just of the, the the way it's written. Obviously, that was not intentional. Uh, but the, I I think and part of the the point of the story, right, is that there could be more of the, of this stuff hidden in there that that has yet to be fully uh, fully vetted or understood. Absolutely. And I talked to some administration officials who were sort of bemoaning this article because it really hit that point home just on this one particular instance. And so they didn't know about this either. Well, like, they just hadn't it? thought it through. Um <laughs> You know, because they're, you know, more of political people trying to push it through. But I feel like that really caught the attention of the White House, at least, uh, or the administration on thinking thinking through this, uh, which has been interesting. Nancy, what what are some of the big provisions that have changed in the so far, at least in what we've heard about the the bill that could come out of the conference committee, as opposed to what passed the the House and Senate? And of course, those two bills were different. Too, and what we're talking about here could end up being the final legislation. Right. And so one of the big things is that the corporate tax rate is going to be slightly higher. Uh, it looks like it's going to be 21%. And it does look like the uh, individual tax rate. Originally, there was a feeling that in order to keep with Trump's sort of populist agenda, it was important to keep the top tax rate as is. But that got lowered after, uh, you know, Trump heard a lot of feedback uh, on that particularly for some wealthy friends. And so that tax rate has been lowered. Um, you know, there's a compromise on what to do with property taxes and state and local tax deduction. That's been a big thing. But then there's all these bitsy things that we're kind of waiting to see what happens with that. We still are not totally sure what will happen with the child tax credit. Uh, we're still not totally sure what will happen with the estate tax. Um and just things like medical expenses, uh, student tuition, you know, we'll have to wait and see the bill. But my point is, and I think we've talked about this before, it's just moving so fast. And there's so many, you know, people and members are going to have very little time to digest it before it's signed next week. Charlie, what do you make of the political calculation that Republicans have made here that they they want to pass this? And part of the reason it's moving so fast is that they they want to pass it in time to for it to take effect in 2018. And they have something that they can bring home as an accomplishment to say, um, we're running on this. this I think it's, a, it's essential. 
to them. And I think that uh, every single Republican member of Congress understands it. It is at that level. It is, you know, a DEFCON 1 red alert issue for them because they don't have an, an enormous array of, of things that they can point to back home. Uh, and especially if you're a, a member who doesn't have, say, stellar or sterling constituent service where you just fall back on that all the time, what your folks back home have seen is a Congress that hasn't been able to accomplish much, wasn't able to do the full Obamacare re- repeal. Uh, you see a Congress on TV that that is, and you blame and you lump them all together. That is engaged in various forms of sexual misconduct, settlements for sexual harassment, and you begin to wonder what the heck is going on in Washington. So you need this shiny object to bring uh, to bring home. And uh, to me, it is, uh, you know, it's something that could even distract from the president if the president's approval ratings remain as low. Uh, as they are right now back in the fall. So, you know, this is a really important item for them to bring home to constituents. Well, and I think, you know, the polling on this has been bad. Like the polling on the tax bill has been poor. You know, most Americans, if they are asked a question like, do you want, do you think a tax overhaul is important? Uh, It's not like the top priority. Uh, Most Americans don't feel like companies need a big tax cut. And so I feel like what we're going to see happen, the key in 2018, I was just talking to a Republican right before I came in here, is going to be like, what's the messaging war on this? Um, Because the Democrats are going to try to paint this as a typical Republican giveaway to the rich and corporations. There is a little bit of truth to that, honestly, um, in terms of the policy. And the question will be like, how do Republicans defend that? That's been the thing that I've been having trouble squaring with the Republican rush to pass this bill. The the Quinnipiac poll, polling on do you support or oppose the Republican tax plan, 26% support, 55% oppose. In Marist, 25% versus 63%. CBS was the best one that I could find recently and only 35% supported compared to 53% oppose. So I I just – I understand the motivations. It just – I I just wonder if um, they're – giving themselves a long-term problem while they're solving a short-term one. But I think that they're just planning on the fact that they'll be able to message it better. I mean, even yesterday we saw at the White House, Trump had this huge speech about how the tax bill will totally help middle class people. There were five families there from swing states. They each got up. Uh, It was very interesting. Personally, thanking the president for uh, this tax bill. Um, It was a little bit of like a a monarchy situation um, by thanking him personally for that, even though Congress (laughs) obviously has been doing all the policy heavy lifting. Uh, this is my aside on that. But, um, you know, I think that the, the White House is just going to keep talking about how this uh, helps the middle class and ignore the corporate part of it. And the question is, can the Democrats sort of land any punches on their argument? Nancy makes a really good point there, I think, which is that the messaging war has yet to be uh, determined. You know, mm-hmm. we don't know who's going to win that. And that's going to have an enormous impact on the 2018 cycle. And, you know, one thing – one thing I'll go uh, on a tangent here. If you if you are interested in the politics and, and policy uh, of, of the tax bill, you got to follow Nancy on Twitter. She's too modest to, to say that, but <laughs> no. But seriously, like I, I I love your Twitter feed on that. What are you, Nan Cook? Nan Cook. Nan Cook. Got to got to follow. I think Nancy that's on this. it. Yeah, Nan Cook. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the Scott, you were talking about what's the problem here? The problem to me is that uh, 
at least the, in the way I see it, the final resolution of this state and local tax deduction issue is, is the most important thing to watch because the political implications are so widespread there. I mean, to me, it looks like an extinction event for Republicans in blue states like California and New York if this doesn't go right. Um, there are huge implications from this for control of the House because some of the best Democratic House pickup opportunities are in these Republican-held high-tax suburban districts in California and New York. Um, uh, you know, there are some Republicans who have argued um, I think with some cause that, that you know they've they've argued that well this is going to force these uh, high tax blue states to lower their taxes you know it might but my feeling is that given the ideology uh, of some of these states and knowing some of the state legislators in those states uh, I just don't see that happening uh, and instead what I what I could see I can envision a, a scenario in which the Long Island Republicans for example get swept under you could see uh, all the Southern California Republicans that are in so much trouble you could see a couple of them maybe most of them get swept under so. So to me, that is the real issue to watch in the in the uh, ultimate uh, resolution of the tax issue, tax reform issue. All right. Well, we will uh, keep an eye out for that final bill coming out in the next few days. We started the podcast talking about the big story of this week: tax reform, presumably passing, unless there's a big problem uh, in the in the conference committee. Presumably passing the Senate and the House next week is going to be the big story of next week, uh, and we will just have to see what's in it. Um, Nancy, thank you for walking us through that. Yeah, no problem. And Charlie, thank you as always for being here. I'm going to Wawa. (laughs) And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Remember, you can email us questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. So... Once again, thank you to our panel. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, uh, our producer, Michaela Rodriguez, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, our researcher and uh, once and future Nerdcast guest, Zach Montalaro, and of course, you, our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We will talk to you again next week.